All right. Well, <clears throat> this morning as we uh, continue our, our teaching in the book of John, um, I want to uh, get, ask you to go ahead and grab your Bibles and pull those out. And uh, we're going to actually look at John chapter 11, verse 55, through John chapter 12, verse 11. And if you've been on this journey with us through the book of John, we've been covering large sections of Scripture. Uh, so sometimes, you know, 40 to 50 verses in a week uh, because there's a lot of narratives that are there. So you'll be excited to know that today there's really only, you know, 15 roughly or so verses. So that's, that's encouraging, right? Uh, we can, we can kind of slow down a little bit and dig in. And the reason it's slowing down here, let me just tell you, is because uh, we're now entering the second half of the book of John. Uh, so chapter 12, it's kind of a, a turning of the page as we go to the last half of the book of John. And just like the other Gospels, uh, the writer John here, he takes a lot more time to talk about the, the last week of Jesus' life. Okay, So the rest of this book of John is actually all about the timeline and the events and the situations and circumstances that surrounded Jesus' final uh, week on the earth in, in God made flesh, uh, that form. And so we know that he's getting ready to go to the cross. And so John, as he slows down, we pick up on some of the, the, the key pieces of the storyline um, in preparation for the cross that's coming. And so I just encourage you guys as you read the book of John along with us, uh, that you really take this time. I mean, here we are in Lent. Uh, Easter's not far away. This is a great time to reflect over the life and the death and the sacrifice and even the resurrection of Jesus as we go through this gospel together. And remember, what was the goal of John's gospel? He wrote this so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, okay, and that we could have life in his name. And that's my prayer for each of you in this room is that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that there is life in his name, all right? So let's read this together, John chapter 11, verse 55. It says this. This gives us a little context. The Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before Passover. Just one note here, Passover, for those of you who may be familiar, may not be familiar, Passover is one of the, the, the huge seasons of festival uh, reflection um, as these people would do uh, this work in Jerusalem to reflect on God's deliverance of his people way back in Egypt when the, the death angel passed over God's people because they had blood uh, that was posted on the, on the, the doors of their house um, by his instruction. And so if you've, if you've never heard that story, I'd be happy to share it with you. But this is a very, very significant uh, memorial time and celebration even for the people of Israel as they remember what God had done for them. And here's what it says in verse 56. They were looking for Jesus. Uh, we're not really told, told they, but we're assuming all the, 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 the Jewish people as they were gathering in Jerusalem. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple complex, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? Why were they asking this? Because they knew that Jesus was in hot water. Uh, that, in fact, he was in danger of being uh, arrested and killed because the leaders had said this already. And that's what the next verse tells us. It says, The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so they could arrest him. So this is the, the scene of, of what's going on in Jerusalem. Well, only a couple miles away in this little town of Bethany, this is where Jesus is with his disciples, and he's doing something a little bit different in preparation for the Passover. So here's what it says. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure 
and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of it that was put in it. Jesus answered, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned that he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. Therefore the chief priests decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. And these guys were some hard-hearted dudes, right? So when you look at this text, I want to just draw out to you <clears throat> a few things today. And, and, and as I said, because we have a shorter text to work through, we can, can drive in a little bit more. And I want you to see some of the things that you may have already observed. Clearly there's, there's this extravagant act that sort of draws our attention with Mary. But there's other things going on in this passage that I think are instructive to us and will be helpful. And so what you'll note is that there's really three people on the front end here who are worshiping Jesus. And they're doing it in a particular way. And I want to say that all of the ways that they are worshiping Jesus are actually very appropriate. In fact, I would submit to you that these are three simple ways, very practical ways that we can worship Jesus. Now, worship itself, when we use that word worship and it's used around church a lot, what, what is it? Just so that we're clear. Well, worship derives its, its meaning from the idea of worth-ship. So when you hear worship, you think about worship, ascribing or assigning worth, okay? And so when we say we're worshiping something, we are assigning worth to that. We are ascribing worth to that object, to that thing. And in this passage, I would submit to you that we have Mary, we have Martha, and we have Lazarus who are all ascribing or assigning worth to Jesus, but they're doing it differently, okay? And so as we go through, I want to take note of that. And the first one we come to is Martha, And Martha, it simply says in this text, Martha did what? Martha served. That's what she did. Now, if you know your Bible, if you've been around church very long, you may remember another account where Mary and Martha are serving Jesus in their house. And Martha is serving, and she looks up and she sees Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. And what does she do? Well, if you know the story, (laughs) she gets upset And she looks at Jesus and says, what is going on, Jesus? How are you letting Mary sit here at your feet while I'm over here slaving away? And so she shows a little indignance, a little frustration, a little irritation with Mary because she basically is ticked that I'm serving Mary sitting, right? And and in that scene, I I would actually submit to you, I think after reading it this week, that's actually a different story earlier in the ministry of Jesus. It's in a different location. And so in that scene, Mary, or Martha, is serving, but she seems to be sidetracked by the fact that Mary's not, and so she gets a little bit irritated. In this scene, we hope, at least because John doesn't record it, that Mary's matured a little bit. I mean, Martha's matured a little bit. She's grown up a little bit. That's good, right? We can grow through some of those things. Maybe this time around, she actually understands it's okay. But she's still doing what Martha does best, which is serve, because if you host a party in your home, uh, there's work that's involved with that, right? Right? 
And, and I know for my family and I, we love having people in our home. Uh, it happens uh, on a regular basis. We have families over for dinner and friends. And, and when you have six kids, you have six birthday parties a year. And you have lots of people in your house. And, uh, and so we have lots of things that go in our house. And, but it's a lot of work to do that. Every Wednesday night, uh, we have our life group that meets in our house, and it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of work, and you have to serve, and somebody has to step in and, and to do some of those things. And even when you share the task, if, if it's your house, there's a work, there's a serving that is involved with that. And what we have to understand is that serving as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, is worship. Serving is an act of worship. It's ascribing and assigning worth to Jesus by serving others. It's a tangible way that we're saying, Jesus, you're worthy, and I want these people to know you're worthy, and I want to open my home, and I want to serve other people so that they can see that you're worthy and that you're good. And so there's a way that we worship through serving, and that's exactly what Martha is doing on the scene. And I would tell you that um, behind this even, we're, we're told in Mark chapter 14 and Matthew 26 that this house apparently belongs to Simon the leper, or should I say the one who was previously a leper, uh, which had to be pretty exciting because now you've got a man who owns a home who had leprosy, who apparently Jesus has healed. He's in the house. And then you've got Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the grave, called out of the grave. He's in the house. And so I'm imagining this is a pretty cool conversation, Right? I mean, how much fun would it be to sit with a guy who had leprosy who's now healed and with the guy who came out of the grave? And they're having this really amazing conversation that we get no detail of. I'm like, come on, John, you could have given us a little bit of something, right? Well, I guess we'll have to wait till heaven to have that conversation with these guys. But I do know this, that in this situation, Martha is serving, she's blessing, she's creating a context for them to be with Jesus. She's making sure that there's food. She's making sure that, there's, that people are cared for. She's making people that the people in the room are, are, are taken care of. And that's a great way to worship Jesus is through serving. But the second person that we come to is we come to Lazarus. Now, some of you guys are going to love this. Lazarus sat. Now, Lazarus, you're like, wait, 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 wait. How is Lazarus sitting worship? Okay. So just follow me here. When you see Lazarus in the scene, it says he is reclining at the table, which is the cultural way they would sit around the table. They would, they would recline. We know that even at the, the Passover, the, the Lord's Supper. You guys probably have even seen paintings. And we know this culture that they would literally lay uh, next to each other. And so Lazarus is reclining at the table uh, with Jesus. And the reason I would submit to you that, that this is an act of worship is because Lazarus who has been resurrected from the grave recently, just the previous chapter here in, in, the, in the scripture, is now sitting next to Jesus. And I, and I got to be thinking, like, what is going through his mind? Part of me wonders if he's not sitting there going, why in the world did you call me back, Jesus? It was great. You know, I was having a great time. I was away from all the pain and the suffering, sorry, this life, and you called me back. Heard my name, right? I wonder, we don't know that. The other part of it is he's got to be sitting there saying, man, I now know who Jesus is. Not just because he called me out of the grave. I, I have a perspective. I understand the beauty and the awesomeness and the power of who Jesus is. And I just want to be with him. And I just want to sit with him and I want to talk with him and I want to inter- interact with him. And I just want to be with Jesus. Valuing Jesus leads us to want to spend time with him. 
listening, reflecting, praising, thinking. I'm sure people were asking Lazarus questions like, you know, what was that like? What happened over there? What was, you know, that, that man, that's crazy, Lazarus. Tell your side of the story. We want to hear your side. And he's just sitting here with Jesus, reclining him next to him, enjoying spend time, spending time with his friend and the one who's resurrected him from the grave. How often do we just sit with Jesus and spend time with him? I'm going to come back to that. The third person in the scene, it's the one that kind of stills the show in some ways because it's described a little further and even it just seems like, wow, like that's pretty, pretty amazing, is Mary. What does Mary do? If Martha was serving and Lazarus was sitting, Mary was sacrificing. She was sacrificing. Now, just so we understand this, it's important to kind of get a little bit, and maybe you know this already, I, I don't know where you are, but maybe you, you already understand some of this, but <clears throat> Mary takes in this scene uh, a bottle, a jar, container of about 12 ounces of pure nard. And this was what was used to prepare bodies for burial. It cost, because we, we know here, 300 denarii, which is basically equivalent to one year's salary. So one year of work could earn, you could, you could then purchase this bottle. And some people say, well, clearly Mary's family must have had a lot of money because they're hosting a party and she's got this bottle she can just break over Jesus, you know. We don't really know all the details of that, but we do know this was a very expensive bottle of oil. And see, who, who, who knew? There were essential oils back in their day too, right? And they were still expensive back then, right? But here's the thing. That was from Alex, by the way. No surprises. Um, that even in that environment, you know, here is something that everybody's like, whoa. Now, there's another story in the Gospels that speaks to, to an account where a, a woman did this. And I would, again, say that it was a different account. It was a different house where a woman came in who was a sinner. Uh, and, and obviously, we're all sinners. But it literally says in the text that she was known. She, had a, she was notoriously a sinner. And she comes in and she gets down on her face before Jesus and she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair and her, her tears, washing his feet. And in that environment, Jesus was approached by these religious leaders who happened to be sitting there saying, this is ridiculous. What is she doing? And what does Jesus say to them? He says this. He says, she has been forgiven much and so she loves much. And this is how she's demonstrating her love for me. I would submit to you in this situation, Mary here, she understands how valuable Jesus is, and so she wants to express that in a very extravagant way. And what's beautiful is that as she gets down in in other accounts, two other gospels, it says she starts with the head, and she pours this oil over Jesus to anoint him, and then gets to his feet. And instead of just like pouring it on him, she literally gets down on her knees again, and she is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, humiliating herself in a sense, because she believes Jesus is worthy of that. Mary sacrifices, not just by giving an expensive bottle of perfume, but actually sacrificing her own reputation, her own position, how people might view her. She really doesn't care at that point, because she knows Jesus is worthy. 
Maybe it's a little bit different application, but it sounds a lot like when David danced before the Lord and his wife came to him and said, David, you're a fool. You're out here in your, your linen underwear dancing before the Lord. Like, what's wrong with you? And David says, I will become even more undignified than this for my king. You see, when the heart is stirred, we do ridiculous things like sacrifice great costs because we know he's worthy. And we want to assign, we want to ascribe worth to him. And the beauty is, is that in this scene, the fragrance of this bottle that was broken fills the house. Everybody gets to enjoy this fragrance. What was typically put on dead bodies, so very few people got to enjoy it. They're actually getting to enjoy it as this, this fragrance fills the entire home. It actually says that in verse 3. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. When we sacrifice, others benefit, don't they? What is God calling us to sacrifice in honor of him, to ascribe worth to him? Well, sadly, that's not where the story ends. It's a beautiful scene of Martha serving, of Lazarus sitting and just enjoying the presence of Jesus. And it's awesome when Mary steps in and sacrifices. But while this is taking place, John interjects here and says that one of the disciples, namely Judas, who John clearly is not a fan of, and you wouldn't be either if you knew what he was going to do, right? John didn't know at the time, but he's now looking back and writing, reflecting on that. And he says in the passage that then one of his disciples, this is verse 4, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now that sounds like a noble question. But John then follows that up by saying this. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And in fact, he took money out of the bag whenever he had a chance. Then when it says that he was a thief, this is the exact same phrase from John chapter 10. You guys remember a couple weeks ago when we said that in contrast to the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name and cares for them, Jesus said there's also a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Same language here because, again, we see the point that what Judas was all about was himself. He was all about himself. And so what happens as Judas who seems to be so caring and concerned about the poor, Jesus sees right through it and he calls him out. And this is what it says. I love Jesus and I love the way that he is able to speak truth directly into us. But here's what he says. Leave her alone. Verse 7. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now I want to give you three things that I think we all struggle with that keep us from worshiping Jesus, that come from the phrase that, that Jesus speaks here. The first one is simply this. When we look at Jesus or Judas and we see what's going on with him, I would, I would, I would argue that Judas underestimated the worth of Jesus. Is that fair? He underestimates the worth of Jesus. I mean, here he is in the room with the son of the living God, the one who John has already written about in John 1, 1 through 18, that said he was there in the beginning and he was with God and he was God and he created all things, right? And he comes 
to be the light of the world and to redeem humanity. And Judas underestimates the worth of Jesus. This phrase, you won't always have me with you, kind of work backwards through these, these things Jesus said, you won't always have me with you. Um, <laughs> Jesus knew that, that Judas was so locked in on himself that he had missed the worth and the value of who Jesus was. We know, because we have hindsight, that that's absolutely true. You won't always have me with you because just one week from this point, Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to die, right? Now, I have to say something here because Judas is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Judas had a front row seat to the teaching of Jesus and to the miracles of Jesus. He got to watch Jesus in action at a, at a very close distance. He got to watch Jesus do amazing things. He got to watch Jesus teach with power and authority. And I believe that what we learn from this is that even if you're in a room filled with worshipers, you can still have a heart that is hard and is not worshiping Jesus. Even if you've heard great teachings of Jesus, even if you have heard great songs about Jesus, even if you've seen Jesus work, you can still reject Jesus and not worship him. Just because you're in a room today full of people who might be seeking Jesus doesn't mean your heart's there. Just, just a thought. But not only did Judas underestimate the worth of Jesus, he also overestimated his own worth. The opposite of underestimating Jesus' worth is really overestimation of self. Overestimating his own worth. When Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you, that's a true statement. (laughs) There there are still poor around today, would you agree? (laughs) They're still here. And Jesus is not saying we shouldn't care for the poor. He's saying in this moment, right here, right now, remember he starts this whole thing with leave her alone. What Mary's doing is she's understanding what's more valuable, what's most important in this moment. And, of course, Jesus knows Judas' heart that it wasn't because he really cared about the, the poor. It's because he wanted to pat his own pockets. He wasn't about trying to help the poor with the 300 denarii. It was that he wants to make himself rich. And sometimes wealth and the pursuit of wealth can actually obscure our view of God and can actually keep us from worshiping God. And we can overestimate ourselves and think we are the center of everything. And in fact, when we worship ourselves, we can come to church, we can go to serving opportunities, we can be in a life group, we can be in community with other Christians, we can be meeting and having discipleship conversations over coffee. But all the while, the core question of someone who overestimates themselves and worships themselves is this question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And if that's the operating question that is front and center in our hearts and our minds, we will overestimate our own worth and we'll miss the beauty of Jesus. And that's exactly what we see in the heart of Judas. And it becomes a barrier. Proximity doesn't necessarily equal intimacy, does it? Proximity, Judas being close to Jesus, didn't necessarily mean that he actually 
saw Jesus' worth. And in fact, it's his overestimation, it's his pride and its own selfishness that blinded him to who Jesus really was. But the third thing we see with Judas, and this is a little bit of a weird phrase, just to be honest. As in verse 7, it says, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. Now, there's lots of questions about, like, what does that mean? In different translations, they kind of translate it a little bit differently. What does it mean she kept it for the day of my burial? In one sense, here's what it means. Catch this. Last week, you guys remember in the passage, for those of you who are with us, if you're a guest, you, you wouldn't know. But, but if, you, if you were here last week, we said that Caiaphas, the high priest, got up and, and at one point he says, we got to kill this guy, right? And we're going to kill him. It's gonna, basically, he prophesies what Jesus is going to do. He didn't know what Jesus was going to do, but he prophesies. God uses him to prophesy what's going to happen. And I would say to you that Mary, in this moment, I don't think she actually knew what was about to happen to Jesus. I don't think she knew that a week from then she, he was going to be at the cross. But I think that God is foreshadowing what's going to happen here. Because remember what was the purpose of Nard? To prepare people for burial. And so here she is anointing the body of Jesus as an act of worship, and also showing us that this is the beginning of the end for Jesus. This mission that he came to, she is, and in one sense, even inaugurating that as she anoints his body. The last week of his life. But I would actually argue that there's some more here in that I think what Jesus is really trying to to correct in Judas is that Judas's heart, again, we already know, was, was messed up. He was missing the point. But He does not have the right attitude towards Jesus, but Mary does. And I think he's saying, leave her alone, Judas, because Mary's attitude is the kind of attitude that we all need to have. It's an attitude that he is worthy. It's an attitude of he is Messiah, he is Savior, he is Lord, he is King. And even though Mary didn't maybe understand all of it, remember just a chapter before, she's already well aware that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so she believes he's the Messiah. And I think in this moment, her attitude, the way she's approaching Jesus is the right way. And she's saying, Judas, your kind of attitude kills the right attitude. Your kind of mindset, your kind of snarky comment about the poor, when you really don't care about the poor, that's the kind of attitude that crushes true worship. You just need to keep your mouth shut, leave her alone, because she's on the right track. I love that. A loose paraphrase capturing Jesus' intended meeting might go like this. Leave her alone. In God's great plan, suffering and death for sin has already begun. And this woman shows her love for me at a time when I'm already headed to the tomb. As for the poor, taking care of them is good and a biblical act of righteousness. And you should do it. However, you will have ample opportunity to demonstrate that concern. I'll be gone within a week. So the question that we're left with is how do we overcome these barriers? How do we actually move towards hearts of worship to Jesus? How do we avoid falling in the trap of Judas? And I would simply say it might sound ambiguous, but the best way to cultivate a heart of worship for Jesus is to worship Jesus. (laughs) You're like, wait, that doesn't help me at all. You know, in Hebrews chapter 13... Chapter chapter 13, verse 15, it says this. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up 
to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. When we come in here on Sunday mornings, um, we are entering a worship war. Sometimes Alex will stand up here as we start to sing and he'll say something like, this morning we're going to sing these songs and we're going to make war on the lies, on the false views of God that we have as we come in the door. Or maybe the false views of ourself as we come in the door. Uh, We are going to make war by singing truth about who God is and what he has done and who we are because of what he has done. Like we come in this on Sunday mornings and, and some of us come in pretty beat up, battered, bruised, and with a pretty small view of God. God, you're not big enough to handle my problems. God, you're not sufficient enough to care for my needs. God, you're not strong enough to do this for me. God, you can't fix my marriage. God, you can't fix my, my bank account. God, you can't resolve my work issues. God, sometimes we come in with all those lies about God. And we have to war for truth. In fact, the psalmist shows us that pattern, like Psalm 62 and things of that nature where we see literally like the psalmist being very honest, very vulnerable and blunt, saying, I mean, I am in a bad place. I am going towards depression. I am hurting. But then you know what he says to himself? He says, put your hope in God, oh, my heart. He starts preaching to himself. Now, I don't know how many of you guys like to read old theologians who are dead, But if you've read old theologians or church leaders who are dead, who God has used, you will find in most every one of their writings that they battled depression, that they battled hardship and struggle because the more you step in to the kingdom of God and to the front lines, the more attack you get from the enemy. And what you will find is in their different language and in their different ways, they argue and they say that this is the thing that we all have to do. We have to learn how to preach the gospel to ourselves. They say that. And there are different ways of saying it, but ultimately what they're saying is we have to war for our hearts to believe truth so that we ascribe worship to the right place, and that is Jesus. And so I would say to you and to myself this morning, if we are going to cultivate a heart of worship, then we have to take a baby step in the right direction by faith and say we're going to believe truth and not feelings. Some of you have feelings this morning that are leading you astray leading you to a wrong view of Jesus and a wrong view of yourself. And I want to ask you to war with us. In fact, remember the scene of this? They're having a party for Jesus. Some of us need to throw a party for Jesus at our house today, invite some friends over and just talk about all the good things that Jesus has done. The reason we're in the dumps is because all we're thinking about is ourselves and what we haven't gotten. Let's think about who Jesus is and what he's done. Let's celebrate him. When we gather on Sunday mornings, this is a, it's supposed to be a party and a celebration of Jesus and centering ourselves back on him. And here's the beauty. You're like, well, Jesus isn't at our party. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's here. By his spirit, he's in this room right now, and he's waiting for us to recline at the table with him and to enjoy his presence and to remember his goodness and to reflect on that and to say, Jesus, you are awesome, and you are all that I need. Yeah. Guys, we need each other to war together for the truth that Jesus is worthy. Now, I realize that some of you came in this morning, and you 
are struggling or maybe you don't even really believe this whole Jesus thing. Maybe you came in, maybe not even sure why you're here. This scene is a preceding scene before Jesus goes and offers his own body to be sacrificed. You see, the reason why Mary's sacrifice is awesome is because we go, oh yeah, I get it, a year's wages on something that was supposed to be a dowry so she could get a husband, on something that was so beautiful and so, so amazing in fragrance and, and so, so costly. But the bigger reality is that the sacrifice that's the center of this story is that she's anointing his body for death, and that death was the greatest sacrifice in history so that you and I would know we are precious in God's sight, that we are loved in God's sight, regardless of our performance, regardless of what we do or say or don't, don't do or don't say, we are loved by our Savior. And some of you, your heart's not moved by that yet, but I pray that the Spirit would move your heart in that. Because if that's just theology, if that's just words on a page, if that's just scripture you've read or stories you've heard, then your heart, just like mine, can get desperately needs the Spirit to come in and refresh us with the truth, and we need to celebrate Jesus again. So for some of you, you need to take a baby step towards serving Jesus by serving others, saying, God, would you meet me in that? And some of you just need to sit with Jesus. I would actually argue you don't need a quiet time, <laughs> but you do need time with Jesus. And what I mean by that is sometimes quiet times are just nothing more than a checking of the box. So I read some Bible verses, I prayed a little bit. I'm not trying to make light of that. I'm just telling you that sometimes that's an enemy of, of the very thing that God wants us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to hear from him. He wants us to interact with him. I know I'm going to like be cheesy here, but I remember a, a song I sang as a Baptist kid growing up, okay? And maybe it's a song that you sang. And it's this, this song, it says, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own. And the joy I feel as we tarry there is none other like none other I've ever known. I remember as a kid, like, what in the world is that? Jesus doesn't walk with us. He doesn't talk with us. But the longer I walk with Jesus, the longer I live out my faith, the more I realize he is waiting for me to just stop and be still. And just to say, Jesus, I'm here, speak to me. And as the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 8, he says, who is man that you are mindful of him? My, my translation is, who, is, who are we that you want to hang out with us, God? Because he does. He wants to speak to us. He wants to bless us. He wants to use us. He wants us to remember who he is and who we are because of what he has done. Let's celebrate him. Let's celebrate him. And if you've never received the gift of salvation, if you've never received that sacrifice, then you can do that today. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much that you love us. And your love wasn't, again, just in words, but in deed. In a, in, a, in a beautiful sacrifice of your very life. And instead of spilling out nard uh, and anointing us, you spill out your blood to cover our sin. Holy Spirit, move in this place to remind us of who you are and who we are. God, for those who have calluses, layers upon layers upon layers, of hearing these truths but not believing them, 
maybe even developing a heart that looks more similar to Judas today. God, would you break through those calluses and you bring a freshness. Break through and help our hearts, God, believe truth. Father, I pray for all of us in this room right now. God, that we would just know that you are good. That you are God. And that because of Jesus, we have the opportunity to join you at the banquet table of heaven one day. To recline with you and to reflect over the stories of you being the resurrection and the life. I would just simply again ask if, if you've never received the gift of salvation, the gift that Jesus offers, um, I, I pray that today you would receive that by faith. And if you have, may you find joy in worshiping Jesus this morning as we sing these songs. And this first song, man, just listen to these words and sing it out. Let's sing it from a heart that is warring to believe truth.